Hey everybody, happy Scary Movie Month and welcome to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Scary movie love for scary movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show, kicking off Scary Movie Month proper following our award-winning Veronica commentary. This week <laughs> on the show we are talking about the Hammer Frankenstein films and I am joined as always for this very special episode by JB. Please Hammer, don't hurt him. Thank you, thank you for making the joke before I did. Um, da, 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 Peter Cushing. Nice. Da, uh, da, da, da. Uh, this was a show that went through a few permutations because at one point we were going to talk all of the Hammer movies. And, and I, what were we thinking uh, with that? Thing, I Brent? have no idea because as I was finishing up the Frankenstein movies, all I could think was, oh my God, thank goodness we didn't decide to talk all of the Hammer movies. I couldn't have watched all them. The show would be four hours long. I think we made the right call by focusing in on just one monster. And it also gives us somewhere to go in future years. Yes. And this gave me newfound respect for the podcast you do with Mike, because as you said, if we had gone with our original idea, it would have been about 25 extra movies. Oh, my gosh. And and uh, that's quite a few. And so um, in the future, we'll do uh, the Draculas, and then there'll be a third one for sort of the catch-all of the other 10 that are really, really great. Yeah. Uh, we are recording this on the fifth day of October, so we are five days into our Scary Movie Challenge those of you who are longtime listeners of the show or visitors to the site are very familiar with the Scary Movie Challenge. Those of you who are new, uh, please make sure that every time you watch a scary movie in the month of October, you go to fthismovie.com and find the Scary Movie Challenge post for that day and leave a seven-word review. We pick a lot of our favorite seven-word reviews and read them on the show like we're about to do right now. It's fun and free. <laughs> Uh, those are two things we need right now. Uh, J-Bones, I will let you go first. Uh, friend of the site, Louis Viljan, uh, views Sleepaway Camp, the original Sleepaway Camp, and his takeaway is that it's a long-delayed gender reveal party goes awry. Very nice. Friend of the site and official Scary Movie Challenge scorekeeper, uh, Miko Vinica who has been posting the daily tallies uh, on yes. his Twitter. Thank you, thank you, Miko, you rule. Uh, says of us, Meanwhile, the Tethered are celebrating their Junesploitation. I remember that one. Casey Doran reviews Creature from the Black Lagoon. Soggy, unsettling allegory for American foreign policy. Blaine Higby says of The Color Out of Space, in reference to the most disturbing image I've seen in a movie this year. Now that's what I call family bonding. <laughs> you know what's weird? I read that one a couple days ago, and I, I just put that together now. When I originally read it, I didn't get the joke. Shannon Briggs uh, reviews I Love the Dead early on in Scary Movie Month and says... Great idea to start with plague paranoia. <laughs> Joel Edmiston says of Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, I hardly know her, Baker Nightmare Maker. <laughs> Killy Fisher reviews Veronica and says, Excuse me, my eyes are down here. <laughs> I think I have that one too. It was yeah, it's really been good. fun seeing all the Veronica reviews, whether you watched it with the commentary or without, but hopefully most of you watched it. With the commentary, Mac McIntyre says of the cat girl, not even this explains what Jellicle is. <laughs> that almost made my list, but this Mac McIntyre seven-word review did. Mac McIntyre on Sleepaway Camp. Just imagine what these characters smell like. <laughs> Castro Drano says of the cat and the canary, which you just wrote about in your column, can't collecting an inheritance ever be easy? And we have the first one that was on both of our lists. Thank you, Castro Drano. Your your prize is mad props. <laughs> uh, uh, friend of the site, Mike Piggly, says of The Devil's Reign, in which satanic panic meet candle. Oh, very nice. Um, Lindsay says of Veronica, 
is a Virkin anything like a Merkin? And I, it took me a couple times to read that because, or not to read it, to get it because when we were watching the movie, we were watching it with the sound off as we recorded our commentary. And I forgot that she pronounces virgin as Virgin. Just another thing that makes that movie special. Yes. And I still remember the fateful day when I was reading something as a, as a mere lad about um, Dr. Strangelove and that all the names in Dr. Strangelove are sexually tinged and the president in Dr. Strangelove is named Merkin Muffley. And the essay went on to tell young J.B. of the Hill what a Merkin was. Mm, yes. So that's the day I grew up. Baba Duke O'Reilly uh, says of Evil Dead 2, wasted my free audible on the Necronicon. <laughs> Uh, this is one of my favorites from Monkey, who's had a lot of very funny seven-word reviews. Another Veronica. Yes, he has. Neckbreaker. Face Ripper. Me? Watch Checker. I made my list, too. So, congratulations. That made both lists. Yeah. Uh, James Loika, writing about Veronica. Fear is mind killer. Albino spider is neckbreaker. <laughs> Neckbreaker. The neckbreaker. Um, Jeremy Wicket of Dracula 1979 with Frank Langella. I have crossed hair salons of time. And that one almost made my list as well. In fact, I'm looking down the the sheet, and I, I love that one because, of course, uh, Shout Factory put out that br- beautiful new disc of the uh, Frank Langella Dracula just recently. Uh, J.M. Vargas writing about uh, Veronica. <laughs> and I'm I'm trying to read what I wrote, and it makes no sense. <laughs> okay, I, I get it. I should have I should have included some sort of punctuation to guide me in the reading. I'm sorry, JM. Here it is. JM Vargas on Veronica. Fade to black drinking game guaranteed to kill everyone. Yes. Uh, Kelly Shea says of Sleepy Hollow, only here for Walken's pointy little teeth. <laughs> Blaine Higby um, on Veronica. Eyes gouged, movie starts. Me, lucky her. <laughs> uh, JP, our friend JP of Dracula 1931. Bella Lugosi makes a very convincing Doug. <laughs> I think I missed that one. I don't remember seeing it. Um, again, friend of the site, Louis Vilgen, reviews The Perfume of the Lady in Black, a film I'm not familiar with, and says, Flimsy Mimsy morphs into monstrous murder mommy. Wow. That makes me want to see it. Yeah. Uh, Will Benson of Man's Best Friend has two seven-word reviews. The first, I don't recommend Henriksen's dog-sitting service. The second I found particularly inspired, that poor pup was treated pretty sheedy. <laughs> uh, Brett C. on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Gary Oldham says he's bringing sexy Drac. Very nice. Uh, Louis Viljean of Us. Tether yourself to a throat lozenge, lady. Yeah, that one almost made my list, too. I thought it was funny. Kanji Krish. I'm sorry. Suddenly I have a speech impediment. Kanji Chris writes of the shape of water. Fish monster gets more action than me. Um, uh, bah, 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 bah. Daniel Epler, where did you go? There you are. Uh, says of Amityville 2, The Possession. Okay, but the sister has no excuse. <laughs> Oh, I still remember seeing that on cable in uh, college and saying, really? Holy shit, Um, that movie. Matt Solenberger on Jaws 2. Starting to think this mayor is incompetent. The shape of Friday the 13th. It's curtains for counselors occupying curtainless cabins. I remember that one. Almost made my list. Uh, Ross on Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Frankenstein, good chef, forever using bad ingredients. Cullen says of Witchfinder General, test is easy, it's pass or fail. 
<laughs> and Cullen says of Ringu. It turns out she didn't mean well. Very nice. Uh, Angela Hager of Halloween 2. Why can't anyone use a light switch? <laughs> Our very own Mike Pomero on Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Poster is better than movie. Still fun. Yeah. Uh, Our very own Rosalie Lewis of House of a Thousand Corpses. Chris Hardwick gets what he deserves. Points. <laughs> Kevin Weller. On Anna in the Apocalypse, it's singing, dancing fun, until it isn't. Yeah. This is my last one uh, from Brian Biddle. I thought it appropriate since we're talking about Hammer movies. He says, of Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, steak in your pocket? Nope, watching Hammer. <laughs> and here's my final one, which means that once you took out the ones that we doubled, we both had the exact same number of seven-word reviews. We're so impressive. How's that? We're like uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Dr. Bob Roberts, MD, on Ghost of Frankenstein. Surprised and delighted with Bella Lugosi's Igor. Very nice. Thank you, everybody. Uh, you have been crushing it. These are very, very entertaining to read. Please keep up the good work all month long. We will be reading our favorites on the many podcasts that we publish in the month of October. And speaking of all month long, before I forget... I just discovered that Peter Cushing, who we're going to talk about quite a bit tonight, is the star of the month on TCM. Oh, wow. So every Monday night, they're going to show three or four of his films. And I think you know what that's going to lead to. And along the same lines, it seems that every year TCM schedules more Halloween-specific programming in October. And I think they get a lot of feedback or ratings or however they judge their success, because it seems like for the last couple of years, every year their Halloween coverage gets better. So TCM is doing a lot more for Halloween this year. And every Friday night, they're featuring movies from David Scall's new book, which I wrote about a week or two ago. Yeah. And um, they have David Scall on the air um, introducing the films and discussing them. Um, I saw it last Friday. It was really, really good. So check out TCM on Friday nights. You'll be pleasantly surprised. Very nice. Uh, Jay Bones, have you seen anything scary lately? Well, I've been very busy watching these Hammer films. Me too. On every platform on Earth. <laughs> I have special edition Blu-rays. I have... Um, Region B imported Blu-rays from England. I rented one of them from Amazon. One of them is available on Hulu. Did you know that? I did not. One of them is available on Hulu. And I believe the seventh one I rented on the cable system. That it was it was right there, ready to be rented. And so that's how I did it. So I haven't seen a lot other than the movies we're going to discuss, but... The other night, um, I did get a digital code to download the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I don't think I've seen that movie in 10 years. Yeah. And full disclosure, there was a very brief period of time in college. This was in the 80s, ladies and gentlemen, when I would actually go see it some nights at midnight and dress up as... Well, usually um, Dr. Scott, but on occasion Riff Raff. Okay. I was much thinner back then. And um, as uh, Roger Ebert wrote about quite a bit, it was interesting to see a film that I was so familiar with um, much later in life. I mean, I'm almost 60 years old, and um, I, I watched it, and it seemed like a completely different film. Um, I still love it. It's really, really good. Um, I had a newfound appreciation for Charles Gray uh, this time. He plays the narrator, and I'm not familiar with his comedic work. So seeing him being funny, and I think he's very, very funny in Rocky Horror, was sort of a revelation. But also, uh, my biggest takeaway was how sort of dark and nihilistic that movie really is. <laughs> I mean, we have the gloss of the time warp and everyone's dressed up and things. But at the end of the film, spoiler alert, 
the whole castle takes off like a rocket ship. And the last words in the film, spoken by Charles Gray, are, and crawling on the planet's face, some insects called the human race, lost in time and lost in space and meaning. And I thought, oh, well, there's your 70s independent cinema right there. That is, this is the film where people are tossing toast in the theater. <laughs> that is, that is dark, man. That is dark, dark stuff. Um, still great. Uh, every time I watch it, I wish the film had done the same thing they had done on Broadway. Uh, the character of Eddie, who's assayed by Meatloaf, uh, get spoiler alert, uh, gets killed pretty early on in the film, and he only has one number. And so on Broadway, uh, Meatloaf would uh, do hot patootie, and then he would go backstage and change, and then he would reappear um, as Dr. Scott, right. his uncle. And so the, the part was double cast. And I would really like to see Meatloaf do that in the film, um, as fine as the actor who does play Dr. Scott in the film is. It would be great to have more meatloaf. It's always great to have more as, meatloaf. As, as it usually is. Right, right. Um, and, of course, I watched Abner Costello meet Frankenstein again because it's October. <laughs> um, I also have not been watching a lot of non-Frankenstein stuff. I have a couple that I can talk about. Um we finally, with the kids, watched last year's animated adaptation of The Addams Family. Yes. Which my daughter really wanted to see when it was out, and we just never did, I think, because it was October and we were very busy. And then a year went by and we still hadn't seen it. So we were having family movie night and it seemed like the right time. It's streaming on both Amazon Prime and Hulu. Um the kids liked it. I should preface it with that. The kids enjoyed it. I was less of a fan. To me, it reminded me of, like, when Patton Oswalt used to do that bit about writing for animated features where they just oh, have yeah. a bunch of comedians in the room, like, coming up with jokes that are happening off camera or little weird that you can sense. You can sense all the punch-ups. Yeah, it felt a lot like that. Um Oscar Isaac, who, you know, in many ways is born to play a modern incarnation of Gomez Adams. I don't know why they then had him play Gomez Adams in an animated film, is doing Raul Julia, which I thought was a weird choice. That's the yeah the vocal affect have, that he took on. I have yet to see uh, the version that you're talking about. Um, something about the animation style really put me off. I but did not have like I ever it. mentioned that... When the Broadway version of The Addams Family, starring Nathan Lane, had its pre-Broadway tryout in Chicago, I went to see that. Uh, Nathan Lane was Gomez, and B.B. Newworth was Morticia. And it was really strange, because as entertaining as it was, uh, they cheerfully ripped off the plot of You Can't Take It With You, uh, the famous Frank Capra movie and Pulitzer Prize-winning a Broadway show where, you know, the two young lovers have to acclimate each other to the, the separate families and stuff. And it just seemed like such a bald faced ripoff. But um, I later learned that the show was not a success in Chicago. And when it got to Broadway, where it did not fare well, they pretty much chucked half of the show that I saw and rewrote it. Wow. So I think I saw an Adams family that only exists in people's memories, right? Um, which of course is one of the advantages of of you know going to pre-Broadway tryouts. But I actually thought it had a shot to be successful. But what do I know? It was it was an odd mix. It it should have been better. If nothing else, the you know production design and costuming had to be cool. The set was this weird series of pieces that the um that the backstage technicians would whirl about on wheels in different configurations and make different things it was it was fascinating just to watch how they would assemble and reassemble these pieces to be the different rooms in the house um 
it was a mixed bag. Okay. Now, the other night for family movie night, you guys watched Critters, right? <laughs> we did, yeah. What did the children think of Critters? It did not really hold their attention. Um my son was a little more into it. He kind of watched it. My daughter checked out pretty quickly. And I don't even love Critters. I, I, I'm actually a much bigger fan of Critters 2 because mm -hmm. Mick Garris seems to have sat down or whoever wrote the screenplay. I'm not sure who wrote it. I can't remember if Mick Garris wrote it or not. Uh, and thought out a lot of gags. And so that movie is kind of a gag factory. And... I didn't want to show them Critters 2 without them having seen Critters 1. I also remember there being some nudity in Critters 2, and I was like, oh, um, maybe it's early for that. It's still a PG-13 movie, but there is some nudity in it. So I avoided Critters 2, but I think it would have played better for them. Yeah. I did not realize until this week on the Twitter machine that Mick Garris wrote Hocus Pocus. Yeah, the movie that exists, he says, is not super similar to what he wrote. Oh, boy. I think he gets a story credit. I don't even know if he gets screenplay credit anymore. I don't remember. Well, he was taking credit on Twitter because he was remembering when it first came out, and it was the number one box office film one of the weekends. And I guess last weekend, because of the strange nature of theatrical exhibition in the United States circa 2020, it was the number one box office movie last weekend again that movie has such a life and such a following i'm so fascinated by it because i have to admit it doesn't do a ton for me i like the the halloween vibe but the movie itself i'm kind of indifferent towards but i didn't grow up with it and i know people that grew up with it have a much stronger attachment to it than i do i didn't see it until last year i had never seen it and obviously the Disney suddenly had this big promotional push to turn it into this thing, this Halloween thing that's beloved. Um, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it, um, specifically the Doug Jones character. Sure. Yeah, he's fun. Which I thought was pretty cool and dark and spooky for a Disney family film. Right. Yeah. Um, what else did I see? Oh, I watched Scare Me on... Shutter. It just premiered last week, and the premise is very simple. It's essentially two people together in a cabin, and the power goes out. They're both horror writers, and so they say to the other one, okay, tell me a story and scare me. And so, in a way, it's a horror anthology, because it exists of these little mini-stories, but it's very interesting because it never cuts away from the two actors performing the stories. So it's, it's these, so it's horror like the horror version of uh, my dinner with Andre. Basically. Yeah. Um, eventually Chris Red shows up as a delivery guy, as a pizza delivery guy. And he gets to be in the movie for a little while too, but it's essentially these two actors. And it was really impressive to watch what they were doing with performance and with sound design and with lighting. They play a lot of tricks to make some of these stories come alive I was super on board with it for a while, even though the stories themselves aren't particularly good. And I think that's kind of a problem. Had the stories they told been really good. It's more of a horror comedy than it is a horror movie. So it's not necessarily trying to be scary. But if the stories they had told had been really good, I think the movie would have gone up a bunch of points in my estimation. It loses me in the last act. It goes to places that I'm not especially interested in. But I still think it's worth watching, if if for no other reason than because it's not like many movies I've seen before, and that's always fun. I knew nothing about it when I pressed play, just that it had been kind of a festival darling, and so uh, when I realized what the game was, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I've never seen a movie like this before. Uh, so I recommend it, even though it's my my recommendation is is somewhat reserved. I will add that to my list. I was on the fence. Yeah. Um, and then finally, I rewatched uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween the other night because I that, hadn't seen it yes. in a number of years. And it's still kind of a mixed bag. It's certainly not a movie that's going to win over anybody who is not already a Rob Zombie fan because 
He's going full Rob Zombie from the opening moments. You have just white trash characters yelling obscenities at each other. Um, I think the stuff where it deviates from Halloween is so much more interesting than the stuff where it's kind of covering John Carpenter's movie. Um, I still think that when it gets into Carpenter territory, I think it's some of his better directed stuff. And I think that the the opening half lends it a different kind of a weight because we know more about Michael, which again is something that people don't like about the movie. Their feeling is, well, we shouldn't know anything about Michael. He's the boogeyman in this movie. He's not a boogeyman. He's a serial killer. It's a different take on the kind of mythos. And it's kind of a tragedy given what we've seen in the first half of the movie characters. We don't want to die, die horribly throughout the movie. Uh, so it departs from a traditional slasher in that way where we're sort of rooting for the killer because the characters are stock or unlikable or whatever. Um, so when it becomes kind of a remix of Carpenter, it's way less interesting. That's the reason I prefer his sequel, but it's still a movie that I like more than I don't. I think you've just put in words what I liked about it because when it came out, I did like it. I didn't love it, but I liked it and I like it. Like you said, when it deviates, yeah. when it's trying to be its own thing, that's when it's at its best. And that's what I thought about. And I think left to his own devices, the whole movie would have been like that. And actually he had planned it as two movies and the first whole movie was going to be what the first half is. It's kind of the setup. And then the second mm -hmm. half would have been more what his Halloween 2 is, which is Michael Myers on a rampage. But Dimension and uh, Bob Weinstein were very interested in, no, 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 it has to be this and you have to do it all in one movie. And so a lot of the stuff where he's remaking Carpenter directly was sort of at the insistence of the studio. And maybe that's why it doesn't work as well, because his heart's not in it as much. Well, it would have been interesting and obviously there's no way to tell, but it would have been interesting to see what the reception would have been to his original idea. Probably not great. How would those two films have gone over? Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, that's what we've been watching. Let's get into Hammer. Uh, and let me quickly plug friend of the site, Daniel Epler's podcast, Cobwebs which is a podcast devoted to gothic horror movies. Adam Risky has been a, a guest several times, and Daniel talks about a lot of Hammer movies on his podcast, so if you like what we're talking about tonight or it piques your interest in Hammer, check out Cobwebs. Um, all right, so we decided to do Frankenstein because, as you pointed out, Frankenstein came first. Right, and watching all the Hammer Frankensteins over the last two weeks made me realize that I probably like the Dracula films a lot more. Interesting. I was already four or five Draculas in when we made the decision to do Frankenstein. So I, had, I did a hard pivot to I'm Frankenstein. A, a <laughs> um, it's interesting, though, to watch Curse of Frankenstein and know it was the first one and how incredibly popular it was and that that's what led to Horror of Dracula because I think Horror of Dracula is a much more accomplished film and actually much more successful at trying to be this really classy version of the tale on a very low budget. Well, and Horror of Dracula feels updated for the times in a way that yeah. Curse of Frankenstein doesn't as much. Curse of Frankenstein isn't necessarily bringing a lot new to the table um, the way that Horror of Dracula is like, well, it's going to be a little more adult. We're going to show some blood. It's going to be a little scarier than, you know, the 1931 movie. Um, Curse of Frankenstein doesn't really do anything new. I say that, you know, as somebody who to one degree or another likes almost all of these movies and if nothing else, I could have any one of them on anytime because they're great, like comfort food movies. They're great kind of background October vibe movies. The same way that like the Vincent Price 
uh, Roger Corman, Edgar Allan yes. Poe cycle is so comforting to me. I find a lot of these Hammer movies from this period incredibly comforting. The sound of them, the look of them. So even the ones that I don't love, and there's like two that I'm less crazy about. Um, I would... I, I Later, we'll talk about what those two might be. Okay. I would dispute what you said about not doing anything new, though. Okay. Because it's it's very hard, I think, for the two of us to put ourselves back in 1957. It's not hard for me. Remember, this is the first this is the first color version of Curse of Frankenstein, and to this, I'm indebted. There's this little slim volume that I'm holding in my hand. It's from the Devil's Advocate series of books about ah, horror yes. films. And it's the book about Curse of Frankenstein by Marcus Harms. And he spends a lot of time talking about Hammer and when Hammer decided to go this route and how different it was and how groundbreaking it was. And I think a lot of people can forget how tame things were back in 1957. And my proof of this is because I've seen so many Frankenstein Hammer films in the last two weeks, I'm sort of shuffling them together in my mind. So, so the shot I'm about to describe either occurs in Curse of Frankenstein once or twice. I can't remember. It's Brain in the Jar. Okay. It's a long, lingering close-up of a bloody brain being taken out of someone's head and put into a jar. And it, it's a really time is spent on it, and it's very, very loving. I think it's very hard for us to imagine the reaction that would have gotten in a movie theater back in 1957. And here's the only reason I say this. Almost every other Hammer Frankenstein film has a similar shot that seems to be an homage hmm. to this brain thing that got such a crazy reaction in theaters in the first one. Well, and to support what you just said and to contradict what I just said, there was at least two moments in the course of watching all of these movies. There will always be a shot of a dismembered arm or a dismembered leg or, you know, some body part that he's found and he's going to stitch together to make a monster. And at least twice I would have these on and Erica would come into the room or look up from what she was doing and see the dismembered limb and vocally react both times. She would go, ah, you know, uh, so it still does have the power to shock. Like I said, to contradict what I had previously said about it, not adding anything new. And this might have something to do with the fact that um, there was a night where I could not sleep. And I said, this will be the perfect opportunity to watch Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. And um, I wasn't feeling too great, and I was suffering from insomnia. But there were a couple things in that movie related to taking out a brain and cutting into a skull and putting this thing into the guy's head that were very hard for me to watch. And that does not describe me at all. I'm there in the yeah. front row with popcorn. <laughs> uh, I like to brag that during... Uh, the Lamaze class that Jan and I took, I ate candy during the um, during the cesarean film they showed us. Wow. Um, the only so if, there, there's my badge of honor. <laughs> the advantage for me that the Frankenstein movies have over the Dracula movies, and I I didn't finish all the Dracula movies, so I couldn't say which ones I like more. Um, you know, the Frankenstein movies, especially when you watch them all back to back, they become pretty repetitive because it's the same story being told every time, despite it being, yes, uh, despite them being sequels to one another. <laughs> the ones that I think I responded to the most or liked the best were the ones that differed or kind of ventured out the most. But what I was going to say is I think I enjoy watching Peter Cushing play Dr. Frankenstein maybe more than I enjoy Christopher Lee playing Dracula. If Christopher Lee's a great Dracula, but a lot of times he's not given a ton to do because of the nature of that character. And they strip away a lot of his dialogue in a lot of those movies. Um, and Peter Cushing has given all kinds that of is, stuff that to is do. The, that is the Dracula series go on as the Dracula series goes on. It seems like Lee gets less and less screen time Yeah, because he becomes an actor whose time is more valuable 
So they can only afford him for this many days or this many days. Um, what I like about Peter Cushing, besides the fact that he's he's a really excellent actor and that he's so sort of nice and polished, it actually surprises you in these films when he does awful, immoral things. Right. Because he does it with such a patina of politeness. It seemed at times, as I worked my way through these seven films, that he was secretly auditioning for Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars uh, when he blows up the planet and says to Princess Leia, you're far too trusting. <laughs> that it's, it's like all these Frankenstein films lead up to that Star Wars moment. And of course, given that Alec Guinness was not the biggest fan of being in the Star Wars films, and Peter Cushing expressed regret till the end that they had killed him off in the first one. Um, I wish Peter Cushing had had the opportunity to be in some of the Star Wars scenes. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what are your favorites here? I know we were going to kind of go in order. I don't know how much sense it makes to necessarily go directly in order. No, um, I, I agree. I did want to bring up that if you're going to... Um, go on this journey that you and I did. Uh, it's a rocky road because all of the currently available prints are of crazy varying quality. Anything that's available on Shout Factory looks great. And we all know they do a good job and those things are beautiful. The version of Curse of Frankenstein that's out there on streaming and on DVD looks bad. It's just bad. And I have a region-free Blu-ray from uh, from England that looks better, but it certainly doesn't look fantastic. It, it looks better than the American streaming versions, but not by much. And I think part of the problem is with every Frankenstein films, uh, with every Frankenstein film, Hammer sort of renegotiated with a different American studio to release it. Right. So check this out. Curse of Frankenstein comes out on Warner Brothers, and then the second one, Revenge of Frankenstein, Columbia releases it. And then the third one, Evil of Frankenstein, is the rank organization. Frankenstein Created Woman is a co-distribution between Warner and 20th Century Fox. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. They're back at War of Frankenstein, the, uh, the redhead stepchild <laughs> in the deck, which we'll get to. Um, is Paramount, and then Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell is MGM. Is If anyone is wondering why a box set of these damn things has never come out, there's your answer. Yeah, right. And it makes me sad because the version of Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell that I watched and the version of Horror of Frankenstein that I watched and the version of Evil of Frankenstein that I watched looked beautiful, just Beautiful, beautiful transfers of beautiful, beautiful prints. And it just makes the the sadness of um, what the Curse of Frankenstein looks like and to a lesser extent what the Revenge of Frankenstein looks like that makes it sad because it's harder to enjoy the film. Right. And the movies obviously okay. are so much about aesthetics. I was excited to learn that we owned all but one of these. The only one we didn't own was Curse of Frankenstein, which I was able to buy digitally on Amazon for five bucks. But as you said, even that supposedly HD stream does not look great. And I thought I had been picking them all up uh, when they came out, and I was actually surprised that I owned Frankenstein Created Woman, but I did not own all seven of them, and that surprised me. So... Now we're going to talk about our favorites. Yes. Okay. Well, you got to love Curse of Frankenstein because it's the first one. And you got and Christopher Lee playing the monster. Right. And a lot of people are not a fan of neither that makeup or that performance. But I don't get it because I think the performance is good. Um, and I actually like the makeup a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with images of it. I don't know that I had ever actually seen the movie until this viewing. Um, but I grew up, you know, reading all those old monster movie books. And so I was very familiar with the Christopher Lee makeup. 
Um, yeah, I think it works. You know, sit someone down, sit someone down and say, sketch out this monster, and it can't look anything like Boris Karloff because when Hammer was making Curse of Frankenstein, Universal was very aware and sent lots of missives to Hammer saying, don't even think about... Yeah. They were very clear about defending their intellectual property. Um, I like Lee's makeup down to his beetle cut. Well, <laughs> and, until they perform the other surgery, I think his performance is real good. Um, he has said in interviews that uh, what got him the part is that the the unspoken part of his audition, that they were very impressed by his ability to, to pantomime. Um, I like it a lot. It's hammer trying something new it's hammer sort of inventing the genre that they would become famous for yeah um i wish there was a better looking print of it um but you 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 gotta love curse um the scene where frankenstein comes into the lab and the monster's standing there and the monster takes its own bandages off its face yeah and you get that, I believe it's a zoom into the face, and then the monster starts strangling Frankenstein. It doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> well, we should point out, you know, Terrence Fisher directed most of these. Um, yes. And he's a really good director. I mean, he would go on to direct some of the Frank the Dracula movies as well. He's a really, really good director. And so you're kind of always in good hands, which isn't to say that every one of his entries is great because I don't necessarily love all of them, but uh, he's a he's a terrific filmmaker. Throughout the series, you see them both playing around with what the monster should look like or realizing that what the series is really about is Dr. Frankenstein, so the monster doesn't make as much of a difference. I think the monster, in Revenge of... Frankenstein, uh, Michael Gwynn as the body that they put that uh, that that they put Carl's head into, uh, that they put his brain into. I thought that whole thing of sort of deliberately shying away from having a monster monster, but really overtly making the point that um, it's his treatment that turns him into something that's a social liability. I thought that was really cool. Um, Kiwi Kingston's makeup in The Evil of Frankenstein is just weird. <laughs> That's the one that seems... It looks like a cereal. They seem to be it trying... It looks like a cereal box. Yeah, they seem to be trying to approximate the Boris Karloff makeup the most in that one, but it's like like a kid sculpting Frankenstein out of Play-Doh is what it kind of looks like. Yeah, it's like a cereal box and paper mache. <laughs> And then we get um, Frankenstein Created Woman, where they're back to a sort of more intellectual thing where we're even going to have less surgery because now we're talking about soul switching. <laughs> and it's a little bit more uh, ethereal. Um, Frankenstein must be uh, destroyed back to Revenge of Frankenstein in that we're talking about brain transplants and what that might mean. And I think the series is at its best when it's talking about those transplants because I find a lot of Frankenstein must be destroyed to be tedious. Yeah. But the last 20 minutes, um, the last 20 minutes, I really, really like when the character goes back home to, to see his, his wife. wife. Okay. I'm making sure that I'm remembering. Yeah. It's real hard to keep. They're, they're mixing together a little bit for me. So yes, this is the one where he goes back to his wife and he carries Frankenstein back into the fire, right? That's this one. And, and and of course and of course it's not him anymore. It's right. just the husband's brain in another body. But that sort of existential dilemma and how it's dwelled upon and how he comes up with this with this way of uh, of um, uh, punishing Frankenstein, I really like a lot. Again, horror of Frankenstein is the redheaded stepchild. That was uh, Jimmy Sangster getting a chance to direct for the first time and them sort of attempting to reboot the franchise. Now, tell me this, because I remember you watching Horror Frankenstein a couple of months ago and characterizing it as kind of 
comedic. And then I think I was looking up the Wikipedia entry, and I think they even characterize it as a what do, what do they call it? A parody of the Frank the Hammer Frankenstein films. Yeah. How so? What, what it, am I missing? It, no, but because it's not. It's it's either a send up by people who don't know what they're doing. Or it's a reboot of Curse of Frankenstein with some inappropriate humor. The the you could say that Ralph Bates is overdoing it as the smooth criminal that he's just he's he, his heart is black as coal and but he's smooth on the outside. The only overt joke I can point to in horror of Frankenstein is when the dismembered hand gives us the finger. Sure, that's obviously supposed to be a big laugh. Um, speaking of monster, we get David Prowse as the monster's bodybuilder in Horror Frankenstein. Who kept reminding I'm not me sure of if that works. Rocky from the aforementioned uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's all I could think of every time he was on screen. And then finally, um, I think my second favorite might be Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell because... Even though we have a monster that doesn't quite work and isn't really organic and is again played by David Prowse, the whole setup of Frankenstein working in this insane asylum and having the time and the resources to work on projects, it seemed to me to be like um, a production by a community theater troupe (laughs) and that... This could have been the setup for a whole bunch of other Frankenstein movies where we just begin everyone with zooming into the insane asylum. And here's what Dr. Frankenstein is up to now. Yeah. Um, so I like that a lot. Although the wig they make Cushing wear in Monster from Hell is really odd and vaguely insulting. <laughs> he's, he's got his own hair for every film in the series except Monster from Hell, where he's got this effete little right. judge's wig. I think that one might be my second favorite as well. I really was surprised at how much I enjoyed that one, considering how late in the cycle it comes, how much it kind of differs from the traditional Frankenstein mythos. Um, and that's a sign, that's really a sign of how good it is, because both of us are experiencing Frankenstein fatigue at that point. <laughs> And that one buoys us right back up to the surface. I think on its own, I enjoy Horror of Frankenstein. I think watching it as part of seven other movies, when it's essentially remaking the one I started with, it's like, oh, this again? But I will admit that I like... I like... I kind of like hammer when it's leaning a little sleazier you know that they started to go that direction a little bit later on close to late 60s 1970s because they were much classier in the late 50s and the jimmy sangster movie is a little is a lot sleazier you just have to look at the portrayal of the housekeeper in curse of frankenstein and horror of frankenstein because in horror of frankenstein she's played by kate o'mara my goodness and uh it's just a, it's a, the whole thing is kind of a, a sleazier movie. So taken on its own, I enjoy it. But as part of the cycle, it felt repetitive because we had just watched that movie, you know, five movies ago. Whereas Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell is like something totally new and really, really fun. And I loved the David Prowse makeup and I loved the characterization of this weird sort of caveman monster. Um, I thought that movie was a blast. Yeah, I was very surprised when Bernard Lee shows up as the tortured sculptor. And um, I'm sitting there saying, oh, that's Bernard Lee. He was M in the James Bond films. And um, he only has one scene. Yeah. I I was really surprised, spoiler alert, (laughs) by how quickly he's dispatched. The other thing which I thought was sort of a missed opportunity was the thing I love about evil of Frankenstein is all the stuff at the fair that it sort of takes place at this roaming fun fair carnival type thing. And I thought that was so interesting for them to sort of branch out and have a different background. And I can take or leave Zoltan, the <laughs> man who can hypnotize 
the monster. Too much but of the, the movie whole, depends on a hypnotist. Yes. But the whole thing about it being a fair and that uh, people are dressed up and things are kind of wild and uh, people act differently and, and all that stuff, I thought that was a really interesting both narrative choice and visual choice because I love how that film looks in terms of the fair and the rides and the attractions and the costumes. But it also has that interminable flashback, um, which essentially just repeats the plot of the film you're about to watch minus the magician. Uh, it's a, somebody I think in the comments or somewhere said they, they characterized evil of Frankenstein as being the low point in the series. Hmm. I might well, agree. I agree. I agree that the narrative trick of the flashback doesn't work, especially when the narrative structure of Curse of Frankenstein, I think, works so well that we start with him contemned to death. And that immediately makes us wonder, well, what did this guy do? And then the entire thing becomes a flashback. I think that works marvelously for a number of reasons. But I agree that the flashback is so oddly placed and so long, so long. In Evil of Frankenstein, you wonder why they just didn't tell the story chronologically. Right. Or would that mean that we don't get to Zoltan until even later? <laughs> oh, no. We can't have that. we got to get to Zoltan as, as fast as possible. Why... You had mentioned, oh, go ahead. You had mentioned um, that you like it when the films get a little sleazier. Yes. Uh, one of the things I like watching the films is, with a couple exceptions... Dr. Frankenstein is really presented as sort of being asexual um, for the most part until, of course, horror Frankenstein, but that's Ralph Bates. Um, the rape scene in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed oh, yeah. seems just woefully misconceived. So much of that movie feels kind of woefully misconceived to me. You're, you're embarrassed that that Peter Cushing is being asked to do it. Yeah. And it's so out of character for him as an actor. It's just weird. Plus, even on a narrative basis, I don't understand what that adds. Oh, and he's also a sex offender. <laughs> Usually Frankenstein has six motives for doing everything. Like, I will make her love me and put her under my spell. But that's not what's going on here. It's, yeah. it's, it's a scene out of a different worse movie yeah again uh, this need to somehow really underline that he's the villain it's like no we get it we've been watching these no. movies we we yeah, know who afraid? dr frankenstein is are you afraid he's too smooth and that you want to <laughs> throw in this uh, steak for the uninvite and it's very strange is that the one where he stabs the girl on the steps too yeah okay Again, they're all running together. His assistants all run together for me. Well, uh, I was going to say, um, there's there's a lot of repetition in um, the other book that I was using throughout this study period was this wonderful book. I'm, uh, I apologize because it's out of print. It's called Frankenstein Legend by Don Glute. And it was this and reread and reread and reread over and over when I was in grammar school. And then much later, I managed to find a copy for sale, and so I bought it. And then about eight years ago, I finally got to meet Don Glute, and I got him to sign my book. Would you like to hear how long ago this book was published? Yes, I would. There's an entire chapter uh, devoted to the Hammer films, and in Glute's chapter on the Hammer films, the series... Um, ends with Frankenstein must be destroyed oh, wow. and talks about there being the rumor that Frankenstein and the monster from hell might be filmed in 1973 because the book was published in 1972. Wow. Does it skip? So it doesn't follow the, what does it skip horror of Frankenstein? No, but it's at that point, it's just talking about Cushing in the role. Got it. It's, it's following the Cushings. So I'm watching these films and I'm noticing that, for one, someone thinks that Frankenstein always needs some sort of assistant, uh, which I have uh, um, I have shortened to ass in my notes. And so 
Uh, we have the the tutor at the beginning that becomes his assistant in Curse of Frankenstein, played by Robert Uquart. And, and then we have Francis Matthews as Dr. Hans in Revenge of Frankenstein. And then we have Sandor Ellis as the assistant in Evil Frankenstein. That for some reason, he always needs a younger assistant. Now, is that so the film can have a male ingenue? Or is that just to give the character of Dr. Frankenstein someone to talk to? I think it's some of both. He's not always an uh, an ingenue in all the movies. Um, I definitely think, yeah, it's somebody for him to kind of bounce off of, and so he has somebody to monologue to. Um, I think it's both. I think you're right. That's a real um, that's a real constant in all these films, and as I watch them, and as they built up in my subconscious. I realized that whoever was writing them had a thing for mute redheaded women who help. <laughs> I know there's at least one. Is there more than one? <laughs> well, there's Katie Wilde as the homeless girl in Evil of Frankenstein, right, and right. she's she helps them out. Right. And then Madeline Smith as Sarah the Angel in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell is... Oh, Very yeah. similar yeah, to that's that. True, yeah. Her inability to speak. Right. And then before the big transformation, you could argue that Susan Denberg follows that yeah. uh, follows that rough outline in Frankenstein Created Woman. It's it's very odd. It's like the screenwriter himself is trying to work something out. <laughs> Frankenstein Created Woman is is like the Halloween three or the uh, Jason Goes to Hell of the franchise, and that it's barely a Frankenstein movie. I actually still really like it, but it's barely a Frankenstein movie. No, it's quite odd. I appreciate them trying to go in a different direction, um, but it's very odd. And of course, you know, the big rumor about that one is they supposedly posed some publicity pictures of... Frankenstein taking advantage of Susan Denberg on the operating table. Uh. I haven't gone looking for them, um, but given the film that we have, that seems like a very strange way to sell the film, given that that's not in the film. But then I wonder if somehow someone's confused or if that's what ultimately led to the plot twist and Frankenstein must be destroyed where out of the blue we get this rape right, scene. Right, right. Very strange. Why is it that there's no real attempt, despite this being a series of films all based around ostensibly the same character, again with the exception of Horror of Frankenstein, um, which is based around the same character, but we don't have Peter Cushing playing him. Why is there no real attempt, aside from like Curse of Frankenstein to Revenge of Frankenstein, those are the only two that really sequelize one another that really says, yeah. okay, this is where we left off and here's where we're going to pick up. And it's not my body in the coffin. It's the priest. And here's how I escaped beheading. Like there's some continuity there. And then they just throw that out the window for the rest of the franchise. There's no real attempt at any continuity because Frankenstein spoilers dies at the end of every one of these for the most part. Uh, and yet, is still alive at the beginning of the next movie with no explanation as to how he escaped certain death. Right. And because it's the same small studio and the same actor, you think this is a missed opportunity, but there is nothing in Frankenstein and the monster from hell that tells us that Dr. Frankenstein has grown or learned or changed no. in any way from all these other adventures over the last 17 years. I mean, we're tracing a character's life over at least the 17-year film span. It it could have been um, the boyhood of horror films. <laughs> Think about it. If they had just had some sense of continuity or of narrative development, um, this really could have been something very different. It's not that I don't like these films. I love these films. But I agree with you 100%. You would, except for the fact that it's Cushing, you'd be hard-pressed to say it's the same guy, yeah. except he likes to experiment a lot. Right. 
Yeah. So and it, he doesn't seem bound by conventional morality. <laughs> no, no, he does not. Is the low point for you, Frankenstein must be destroyed? I would say so, yeah. Yeah. Although, even there, and I, I watched the films out of order because for some reason um, there was a there was like a half an hour where I thought Frankenstein must be destroyed was the last one. I did give Frankenstein must be destroyed credit for trying something different in that more than the other ones, it's trying to be a policier that they're in, that they're introducing that aspect mm -hmm. that these, uh, the, the authorities are trying to track him down and it's sort of a cat and mouse game. In fact, the one scene and Frankenstein must be destroyed that I really like is when the three of them are trying to hide the truth when the cops come to uh, to uh, search the boarding house. And remember, the assistant is painting the staircase. Right. And it's it's fraught with real tension and suspense. It's really, really well done. And I wonder if you're going to go that route. Why didn't you do more of that? If you're making the decision to make this about the police manhunt, then then go all the way. Don't just make it uh, icing on the cake. Make it part of the cake. Well, and in some ways, the franchise, if you're going to look at it as a franchise, becomes like like any franchise that goes on for a long period of time. I've often likened the Saw films to the Planet of the Apes franchise in that the longer they went on, <laughs> the weirder they get and the more they care, the less they care about anybody but fans of this franchise. Their newcomers are no longer welcome. Like you got to be in on this thing and then we're going to take I you thought... to some crazy places. And this Frankenstein series is kind of similar in that way. No, no, no I agree. I thought that about the television series lost. Okay. In fact, I used to compare that one season of Lost to Planet of the Apes when all the main characters were in cages. Yeah. In that one place. Yeah. It seemed to take a Planet of the Apes turn. Uh, but no, I agree with you 100%. Um, it's a strange journey. <laughs> um, anything else about the Hammer Frankenstein movies you want to bring up? Well, obviously, even if we're being very critical... I'm looking at you, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Um, we obviously think our listeners should see all seven of them. Yeah, I definitely think so. And and you don't have to necessarily watch them in order because, as we just pointed out, um, there's no real continuity. But I recommend watching them in order, if only for the reason we just kind of outlined, which is that they get weirder and more experimental the longer the series goes. And they start going to some really interesting places you know it doesn't always work like frankenstein must be destroyed uh takes some risks that are not great but uh but the other ones i think you know frankenstein created woman and frankenstein and the monster from hell i think i like those deviations from the standard formula i'm kind of more interested in those than just a retread of curse of frankenstein and, and to the filmmaker's credit even something like revenge of frankenstein which i didn't love um, is definitely trying to go in a different direction. It's not just remaking Curse of Frankenstein because yeah. we have a very different kind of monster. In... You can see that decisions were made to be different. Yeah. One more thing about the brain in a pan, <laughs> and then I'll let that dubious point go. Because I like seeing a brain. I like seeing a bloody brain. I, I like that in a movie. Uh, there is a shot in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell where the brain that the doctor doesn't need is dropped into a pan on the floor. <laughs> and then fairly quickly after that, Frankenstein actually trips on it. Yeah. I think that's the filmmakers going back to Curse of Frankenstein and making a comment about this shot that really wowed them in 1957. Interesting. I like that. That's what I think. That's what I think is going on there. They're sort of tipping their hat to. They're tipping their hat to the fact that it's 1974 now and uh, 1957. I like it. 
All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for uh, the Hammer Frankenstein series. Thank you guys very much for listening. Make sure you're participating in the Scary Movie Challenge every day. We'll be reading your seven-word reviews more on the podcast in weeks to come. Thanks, JB. This was super fun. 14 hours to watch the movies, 45 minutes to talk about them. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We should find we should find a way to reverse this. Listening to FS Movie.